If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Benjamin Franklin. He'll be answering our call on August 17th, 1787, at the age of 81 years old. In his prime, Dr. Franklin was celebrated across the globe as an inventor, a writer, a scientist, and as the man who tamed lightning. The French loved his inappropriate quirkiness, of which you'll hear plenty on this call. The American colonist leaned on Franklin for his ingenuity and brilliance as a statesman. Franklin loved London, and the English ladies loved him back as he lived there for nearly 15 years, soaking in the glitz and the glamour of the most interesting city on earth. By the time the American Revolution was boiling over, and the younger rebel-rousers of the time were fed up with the Brits and their unfair taxes, Franklin was already an old man. He wanted nothing more than to enjoy his life in London as a loyal British citizen. Then, on a routine visit to speak with English leadership, everything changed. On this call, you'll hear Franklin say, This was the exact moment that he transformed from a lifetime loyal British citizen into an American patriot. After that, he left England, convinced the French to support our cause, allowing the Americans to hang in the war long enough for the British to reconsider their position and say, Hmm, very well then, we're leaving. After which time, America, unencumbered by war, was born. There is a reason that his face ended up on the $100 bill despite never being president. Ladies and gentlemen, Fellow history lovers and printers everywhere, I give you Benjamin Franklin. Hello, Dr. Franklin? Hello? Dr. Franklin, sir, I am humbled to make your acquaintance. My name is Tony Dean, and I'm calling you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding is called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were standing eight feet from one another. And it also will allow me to share a recording of this conversation with people around the world, most of whom still know your name, sir, because the mark you've left behind by the means of living your extraordinary life. Well, sir, I, I was hoping that I could ask you some questions, but before I do, I understand that this is a very strange introduction. Is there anything that you'd like to ask? Where are you coming from? I'm sorry, I'm looking at my garden from my house, and I... I, I see plants, I, uh, an iPhone, what, what are you talking about? I do hear you, but I'm not sure where your voice is coming from. Well, the device that you're holding, it actually allows people in my time, more than 200 years from, from where you are right now, to talk into the device and our, our words pass through the error to one another. And, uh, sir, i got to be honest with you, people here, we don't even know how it works. We just know that it does, and we count on the people that are smarter than us to, to make it all work. But it's remarkable, it is. And I'm sure in your time, this is something that you would have certainly used regularly because you were everywhere communicating with everybody all the time. So, sir, I, I was wondering if, uh, you said you're looking at your garden right now. What are you growing in your garden? Oh, we have... We have squash, we have 
some peas, we have carrots, we have potatoes, the common sort of thing, nothing unusual. I understand that you have spent, or at least tried, most of your life to live as a vegetarian. Is that correct? Well, actually, I should think that most of my life I have not been a vegetarian, but there was a point in my life you know, I am still rather concerned about what you're saying in my hand. I'm holding an apple in my hand. Do you think this apple is the thing that's talking to me? <laughs> Probably not. At least let's hope not. No, the, the device that I'm talking about that allows us to communicate, in the future there are all kinds of devices like this that actually use electricity, which I'm sure that would be something that would interest you. but. It just allows two people to communicate as if they were right next to each other. And in, in our time, this is something that we do every single day. So, for example, if, if you can even imagine this, imagine that you were living in London and the American Revolution was just the start. And, and before you left London, I think, in 1775 and went back to um, Philadelphia, I think, just imagine if you were to be able to call using this device, George Washington, you could just have a conversation without having to travel across the sea or without having to send letters. You could just have a conversation anytime you wanted to. That's what this device allows you to do. I'm very skeptical, sir, but here I do hear your voice and I'm listening to your words. I should continue because I'm curious enough to, to, to discover what actually is going on here. Well, sir, I would expect you to be skeptical. I certainly would feel the same way. Yeah, I, I guess I would just like to ask you some questions about your life because, you know, you've passed so much wisdom along and much of that has endured to this time. And you know, I was just hoping I could get your, your interpretation on that. But I, I would like to go back to what, you were, what I was just asking you about being a vegetarian. Uh, in huh. this time, there are a lot, there are a lot of people that that think that eating only vegetables are healthy. Do you have strong feelings about that, about not eating meat? Well, it was as much an economical activity as anything else. I, I have to think. The, uh, I think the period of time in my life you were talking about is when I was a, an apprentice to my brother. And, you know, as an apprentice, you don't earn any money. And I, I found that very hard to live with. And coincidentally, because I had been reading, I read about vegetarianism. And I thought, this should be very interesting. I should try it. Well, I did. But as an apprentice, I was living in a house that my, father, that my brother had provided, my, my, my master had provided for us, uh, apprentices. And the woman there then also provided, besides uh, room, she also provided board. And suddenly now, you see, I was not eating any meat. I was eating absolutely no beef. I was eating no chicken. I was eating possibly a little fish. But that was the extent of the, 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 the protein that I was eating. And the thought, well, it wasn't the thought, but my not eating her regular meals made it very difficult on her as she had to prepare extra to accommodate a meal for me. And 
ultimately what I did was I asked my brother, who was very tight-fisted, I should say, <laughs> that if he were to give me half of what he pays this woman to feed me, I should feed myself and I should be perfectly happy. Well, he did. He was very anxious to get rid of this, this albatross on his back and, and to make peace with the, 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 the mistress who was running the house and who was complaining bitterly about her having to work so hard just to feed little Franklin over here. And, <laughs> and, and so it, it went that way. And my brother paid me whatever it was for three shillings, four shillings a week, perhaps. Uh, and with that, I was able to pro procure bread. I was able to get vegetables, whatever was in the market, a beet, a potato, of course, uh, uh, carrots, uh, again, whatever was available in the marketplace, seasonal. And... I was able to enjoy a, a completely uh, satisfying meal with the money that he paid me. But more importantly, you see, suddenly now I had a little source of income. And if I was frugal enough, and I assure you, I was very frugal, I, I could save perhaps a sixpence, tuppence, uh, three or fourpence, whatever it was, maybe even a shilling if I, if I had been uh, especially uh, frugal. And with that shilling, I could save my money, and ultimately I would have a little cash, you see, that I could use to purchase a book. And that's how I was able to save money and to purchase books. And I should, I should say it, 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 kept me, it kept me moving because I was so enthralled with the idea now of being able to save the money and buy the book that I was anxious to to buy the book and read it. And moreover, moreover, I should say, once I had the book, I would read it very quickly and very carefully so as not to tear the pages or, or mark the pages. And then I should be able to sell it back, possibly not at the full price that I paid, but very close to, as it was still practically new. And then I would still have the money that I used to buy the book, and I could then buy another book. And with this newfound wealth of mine, you see, I, I was able to, uh, to do a lot of reading and to educate myself in all manner of things, my word. And all because I became a vegetarian. Now, Very interesting. Oh, you go see, ahead. Who would have thought the, that vegetarianism could could lead to enlightenment, but it did. <laughs> it definitely did. You know, it's interesting because I've read so much about you, sir. I can't imagine you buying a book and then selling it back. I have this picture in my head of behind you having this extraordinary library, considering that, you know, later in your years, that, that was one of your goals to actually, from my understanding, was to create a library where people could share their books. And so, but in the early days when you were basically living off less so that you could save some money, I guess you wouldn't have had excess money to where you had to sell those books back or there'd be no other way to get another one. My, my understanding is that you were a reader from a very young age and didn't go very far in school. 
and actually educated yourself exclusively from books. Did you have a, a routine or a goal of how much you committed, how much time you committed to that? Oh my goodness, there are several things you mentioned that I, I, I think should be clarified. For your information, as I recall, I can never recall not being able to read. So I suspect I was able to read letters when I was perhaps two or three at the very, very latest. Wow. And, and as I said, I, I never remember not being able to read. I could always look at a word and at least pronounce it, even if I didn't understand it or even if I didn't pronounce it properly. But I could read the word. And so words have had a fascination for me, and, and the ideas that words convey have ha had a uh, fascination for me from as early as I can remember. And I suspect it formed the basis for the rest of my life. Now, oh my, uh, I must say, I, I think I have forgotten the second thought that I was going to elaborate on. What was the second part of that question? Well, I, I was asking about keeping the book and how later on you worked towards establishing a subscription library where people could take a book and read it and then return it. And collectively, everyone would have access to the, the same book. And I, I guess I was just surprised that, that you were selling the books back, but it seems like you would have had to because you didn't have any money because the only money that you had was from basically what it looks like was your first business of saving money by eating less. Well, that's correct, and eating no meat. Meat was and very... eating no meat. You see. But uh, potatoes and bread were, was very cheap. Very, very cheap. And so uh, I, I could fill myself up easily with a few shillings that I had per week. Now, again, there were several things you mentioned I think should be elaborated on. I did sell my books back for the most part, but... In later years, when I wasn't as flush for, for, the, for the money, I assure you I bought books and I, I, I read them and I kept them in my library. I, I was not prone to selling books back in my later years. But at this point in my life, I was beginning to, to establish a, a precedent. And that precedent was to learn as much as I possibly could. You know, I was always very curious. I still am. I'm still curious about this telephone call you say. You say <laughs> this phone call, holding this apple, and I'm thinking, surely this apple doesn't run on electricity. <laughs> well, actually, let me add to that, and I don't, I don't know if they had batteries in your time, but not only do these devices run on electricity, not the apple, but the the device that we're speaking through. They, there actually would have been a device in a lot of the, the tools that we use in this era that not only uses electricity, but safely stores it. Imagine if you were using a tool in your garden, say a rake, for example, to disturb the dirt before you would plant. Well, there are devices that, you, that will do that automatically for you, and they'll store the electrical charge inside of the handle so that it will do some of the work uh, without you having to do anything. And so, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of that in this time. My goodness, it's, you know, uh, dear sir, uh, 
You mentioned the word battery. I'm surprised that that word is still in use. Uh, that is a word that I coined, you know, uh, with relationship to electricity, uh, which I experimented with at length. And I had to discover new terms for the, the characteristics that I was coming across. And uh, when I put are you familiar with the Leyden jar? No, no, please. Tell me more about the battery and what you just said. I'm not even sure what that word was you said. The Leyden jar, L-E-Y-D-E-N. It, it's named after a city in Holland where it was discovered. And No, tell me about it. In the course of working with the electric fluid, as it was known at the time, there was a need to be able to hold that current because, as you know, it comes and goes so quickly that there's no way of seeing it unless you're looking at lightning, and then you see the manifestation of a streak of electricity moving. But otherwise, you don't see it. And if you're trying to experiment with it, you need a source that is reliable. You need to be able to turn to something that will give you the charge when you need to prove or show something. And the Leyden jar was able to capture and hold a charge so that it would stay in this jar, this glass jar, until it was released. And it's released by taking the poles and connecting a wire between the poles or between the pole and the ground, and the charge would run into the ground or through the experiment, you see. Uh, it was instrumental in, 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 in experimenting. Without the Leyden jar, there would have been no way of, of capturing charge or of building charge. And if you take multiples of a Leyden jar, each one with a charge, and you connect them positive, negative, positive, negative, positive, negative, ultimately, when you hold all of the positive charge and the negative charge, when that charge is released, you are now joining the, the current from each of the Leyden jars and not just one. And that charge is many-fold more powerful than the charge from just a single uh, jar, a Leyden jar, you see. And, uh, oh, at one point so I was... Is a, group, is a group of these then what you're calling a battery? Well, it is exactly what I was calling a battery. And a battery comes from the artillery in the, uh, in the, the, the army, you see. Uh, the the uh, term has existed, but if you look at a battery, you have multiple cannons, and each one firing. Obviously, the, the firepower of a battery is much greater than that of a single cannon. And therefore, I use the term to connote the extension of the Leyden jar into multiples, so that you had multiple laden jars, and you had a much more powerful force, and that was a battery. In the same way that a battery is a bunch of cannons all firing at the same time, 
the battery that you're talking about is a bunch of Leyden jars that are shooting a, an electric current at the same time, operating exactly. together as one. Exactly. I did not know that you had anything to do with the word battery. Not that I'm surprised, sir, but I did. So what was your plan then? What were you going to do or what would you hope to see done with these batteries? Because so let's say that you were to get 20 of these Leyden jars in one place and maybe find a way to control the electricity, what would you hope to do with it in your time? I think that's a very good question. I had no idea what I was hoping to do with it other than to understand it. I wanted to know what it was. I wanted to know how it worked. I wanted, that makes sense. For example, uh, the difference between positive and negative. Now, that's critical if you're thinking of electricity because electricity works on the principle of positive and negative attract. Positive and like, like signs, like positive, positive, and negative, negative, repel each other. And that's critical to know. For once that is understood, then it makes sense, for example, that if you have a cloud overhead that is uh, positive, and the, gro uh, the ground below you, and everything on the ground, and everything sticking up from the ground has the negative charge, and positive goes to negative, or negative goes to positive, you can understand where electricity would jump from a cloud to the highest thing it could find. Electricity doesn't like to work very much, and so it will go to the easiest closest charge it can find to even itself out. I should say that if you have a cloud with more, oh my goodness, uh, all of a sudden you see we're talking so much about electricity, but especially in a thunderstorm, the clouds are mixed up and, and the positive and the negative charges get mixed up. But electricity is such that it likes to be balanced. It likes to have as much positive energy as it has negative energy. And that's, that's a state of equilibrium that it can live in. If in the I course see. of being thrown about and mixed about, it gathers, let's say, more negative charges than positive, well, those negative charges have to go somewhere. They will not stay indefinitely with the positive charges because it's an unequal amount. Dr. So, Franklin, I, I have to be honest with you. I will never get bored of listening to you talk about anything, so please continue. But I am confused because how in the world, in your time, with the devices that you would have had access to to figure this out? Because I understand that you're the one that first coined or realized that this positive and negative charge existed, if, if I understand that. How did you even realize that? I mean, what made you look at a cloud and see that a cloud needed to find an equilibrium and, and, and it didn't exist. Like, where did that come from? Oh, my goodness. Well, I, I did a great deal of reading. And so I read everything that was available and I experimented to the extent that was entirely possible for me. You see, I had recently retired from my print shop and I had the funds uh, to, to purchase various experiments. I had a good friend in London who sent me various tubes and, 
and, and various other things that I needed for my experiment. And I ascertained that there was indeed a difference in the charge, which, and I'm not sure that I can explain it particularly well, but there was, in electricity, every piece, for want of a better term, every piece of electricity is charged both negatively and positively. I wonder why in your time would people have not thought lightning was electricity, because they didn't think that until you claimed that it was electricity. Is that correct? People at that time, and you must know that as a, as a young man, uh, there was a very active society in Salem, which is not far from Boston, that was hunting witches and practicing witchcraft. Mm-hmm. And People believed very strongly in a God-oriented universe, and everything that happened was was given and 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 maintained and and orchestrated, if you will, by God. And that's what people believed. And as far as lightning is concerned, you know they believed that if your 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 father's barn or your mother's home was destroyed by a lightning bolt. It's because they deserved it. They had been unfaithful. Can you imagine that? Well, I, I couldn't. I can't. I couldn't. But nonetheless, that's what many, many, many people believed. And, Interesting. And so, with my own curiosity and the, and the, the experience I had to see uh, an electric experiment performed uh, at some point later, later in my uh, business life, I said to myself, this is fascinating and I've got to find out more about it. Coupled with the fact that I didn't particularly believe that it was uh, a good-natured God who would intentionally send a lightning bolt to destroy your, your father's barn or what have you, or the tree in front of your home. You're that serious. makes a lot, yes, that makes a lot of sense because I know that my understanding is that you are, are a strong believer in God, as I am, and I've always wondered that as well. Why would God send a lightning bolt to destroy somebody's house, a couple of people that are just trying to feed their family and you know care for their animals or make their business or whatever? It, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And somebody with a curious mind like yours, sir, I, I could see how that would lead you on that quest to say, wait a minute, these two things don't make sense. And try to understand it. And so where a lot of people would just assume that that's just the way it is. So that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Can, can I ask you about the, you had mentioned in Salem, I, I think uh, 1692 is when they had the Salem witch trials. By the way, what, sir, in your time, what is the year right now? Uh, it's uh, 1785. 1785 right now, okay. Are you 79 years old? Is that right right now? I'm sorry, sir. Are you nine years old? Knew me particularly well. I've taken a bite out of it. Perhaps I have destroyed some of its capability. I hope not. <laughs> Go ahead and eat the apple. I think we'll do just fine. <laughs> so, I, I want to ask you about the uh, the witch trials in Salem. Do people still believe in witches right now? Oh, <laughs> well. 
I don't make it a point to ask people their, uh, their philosophy. And I suspect simply for the nature of witchcraft that probably there are still people who believe that. But uh, the, witch, the witch trials are long past. And it's anyone's guess, but perhaps just a handful of people believe it. And I'm not sure that anyone is still practicing it, thank God. Yeah. I, I have to imagine that, you know, I mean, we're talking almost 100 years ago when those witch trials took place. And I have to imagine with all of your inventions and all of your curiosity and your creativity that you would have been accused of witchcraft or being a warlock or, or something. Do you think something like that could have happened? Were men accused of that, I wonder? Well, indeed they were. But I think it's the, the, the witches, the, the women, who are particularly uh, exposed, as they were probably more defenseless and could not speak up very well for themselves. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So you had mentioned a minute ago, you were talking about your, your brother, James. I'd like to ask you about your, 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 your brother, James, who you apprenticed with when, when I think that you were 12 years old, who taught you printing. What was your relationship with James? Not particularly good. Could you tell me more? Well, he, uh, he was very physical with me. And yeah. if he didn't like something uh, the way I did something, and I assure you, he generally didn't like the way I did something, uh, he would whack me on the side of my head, or or kick me with his foot, or 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 or, or, or bounce me about the shop. You see, uh, he was the master, and he he was there to let me and everyone else in the shop know that he was the master, and he wouldn't take any nonsense from anyone. Well, the fact that he was my brother, I thought he would treat me just a little differently, but no, he did not. I was not the only apprentice. And in fact, perhaps he treated me even worse, for uh, no one else, no one else took quite the same advantage of him as as I did. And I assure you, I I did what I could to 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 make my point known, and and to be able to live there and work there. Obviously, I had to play certain games and 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 carry out various fantasies, if you will, so that I could manage to deal with this this. A rather monster of a brother of mine. Was he the oldest? Because I know you were. You have uh, uh, quite a few brothers and sisters, aren't you? My one goodness. of seventeen. I am the youngest brother. I have two younger sisters, and my father, in his life, sired seventeen children, all but one, I believe, who who actually lived to to adulthood. Was James the one that you got along with the worst? Well, certainly being his apprentice put me in that category. <laughs> well, that's, that's a shame he wasn't a little nicer to you. I think he probably would have had more luck in his business if he had treated you a little bit better. Because when you, a couple of years later, I know that you intended to do some writing at the age of 15 when, when James founded the New England Current. We know quite a bit about the silence do good letters. And I'd like to hear how that came about. How interesting. Well, 
as I said, I played games on my brother. And one of the games I played was, by name, Silence Do Good. You see, I'm not sure, and I'll have to think on that, I'm not sure that my brother ever knew who actually was the author of Silence Do Good. After everyone was left the shop, and I would take my meals apart from everyone else, and I would come back in the evening to read my book. As we had a candle at the shop, we didn't necessarily have a candle in the, in the, uh, uh, the room I was staying in. And I could read there, and then when I was finished, I would leave the shop. So I was left to be in the shop late at night uh, by myself, and that had become a rather common practice, if I may. And it occurred to me that, well, I'm not sure what it occurred to me, but I was thinking, what if, uh, once the paper was being published, what if we should have more than just the ordinary correspondence, but something a little different, to spice it up a bit? And I thought about it for a while, and ultimately I came up with the idea that Ah, we shall have a letter from a woman who lives out in the countryside, whose name is Silence Dugood, and she shall write a letter to the current, and we'll see what happens. Well, I assure you, what happened was never within my wildest imagination, because, you know, it became very popular. But what happened was, I wrote a letter, I pretended myself to be Silence Do Good, a woman outside of Boston, who wrote about complaining how difficult it was to be a woman and how there was so much work and absolutely no appreciation for, for the work that the women were doing in our, in our society. And she went on and on and on. Well, I went on and on and on, as silence. <laughs> and yes. ultimately I said, well, well, we'll put this one together. And I folded it very carefully, and I put it in an envelope, and I sealed it. And then as I left the shop, I put it under the door behind me. So then it was, uh, it was there in the shop store for the first person in in the morning to find. Well, they don't know when it was left the night before. And so I simply said, no, I've no idea. I hadn't seen anything there, obviously, or I would have taken it to James. So James got the letter, and he looked at it, and he never suspected that it was his brother who wrote it. I, I suspect I did a good job of imitating characteristics of the woman, you see. And my brother published the thing. He actually did. Well, I assure you, if for a minute, if for a second, a brief fleeting second, he knew that it was me who wrote the letter, I assure you it would never have seen the light of day. It would have been torched instantly. It would have been discarded. It would have been the end of it all. And so, Probably not even read. Oh, well, probably not even read. If I had given it to him directly, he would have said, hmm. Uh, and what is this, Benjamin? 
I'm wondering because when I think of the way that you lived your life, sir, I am guessing that you were probably one of the first people to show up to work. On the days where you would drop a letter off under the door, would you intentionally not be the first person in the hopes of somebody else finding the letter? No, I was intentionally not generally the first person in. Again, because I would spend the evenings reading. So I would shop at night, but I would not be the first person there in the morning. Interesting. At that time, you were a 15-year-old boy, ingenious for sure, but you were still 15. I have to believe that Silence Duguid, who you represented as a middle-aged widow, was based on somebody. Was there somebody that you used as a template to write in her voice? Not specifically, no. But there were characteristics of the women in our society. I've always somewhat looked after them. I've always felt that they they had the lion's share of work and the responsibility for for maintaining the society and the home, of course, and received none of the credit for it. I, I've believed that ever since. Well, my dear mother, Abaya, worked so very hard. You can imagine with 17 children and a husband, my word. Now, there was help in that. There had to be. Just the laundry alone would take hours and hours of all of the, the clothing that was done. So it was imp- impossible for Mama to do everything by herself. So yes, she Thank had you. help, but my word, still. Uh, so, so I think there was not any one woman, but perhaps uh, a composite of all the women I had ever known. I can see that. Who, you know, as who, you were mentioning how you were talking about the newspaper and your idea of writing this letter to add a little spice to the newspaper, I get the picture in my head that the newspaper is news, telling what's happening in the world and, you know, a little dry, but probably not a lot of newspapers to read. And your goal was to add entertainment to that. Well, I think in this time, I think that you would find that the direction has gone completely the other direction. The news now strives to be entertainment first to catch people's attention and then sprinkles just the tiniest bit of actual news. So I I think in this time, you would find that the news to be not as valuable as in your time. But a a whole lot of entertainment. Do people find out what's happening in the world? Do they read the newspapers? Well, they, uh, they do read newspapers, and there are lots of different ways that people communicate. But the number of people that are in the United States now is 100 times what it would have been in your time. And it is sometimes difficult to figure out if the news from one newspaper is correct because the other newspaper will say exactly the opposite. And so I think a lot of people are really confused, to be honest with you, because they don't know which news to listen to because they're not required to tell the truth. Oh, my. Sounds complicated, doesn't it? Well, it sounds ridiculous. It is ridiculous. (laughs) Is information if it's not true? Uh, You're absolutely right. It is ridiculous. And, you know, that brings me to something else that happened to your brother. Your brother, I understand, speaking of free speech, which is a great thing, unless it's abused, which I think it is right now, but 
your brother was jailed because I, I think he spoke against somebody in government. Did you take over his shop when that happened? Or can you tell me about that? Well, of course I can tell you about it. I'll have to just pull my thoughts together. You know, this is going back many years. <laughs> my brother was a bit outspoken. On his behalf, that's something I can certainly say that I appreciated. And one of the many things that happened in Boston is that occasionally a ship would come in and someone on the ship would have smallpox, unbeknownst, of course, to everyone in Boston. And that fever would spread, and many people would die from the fever of smallpox. And we knew at the time that we could inoculate people, vaccinate people against this dreaded disease so that even if they did contract the disease, it would not be as, as, as mortally devastating as it would be otherwise. Mm -hmm. And we felt that everyone should be vaccinated. That seemed to make sense. Well, if we go back to the idea that there are people and there were people in the world who felt that God created the environment and everything that happened was God-given, if now suddenly you have a disease and people are vaccinating themselves against the disease, they're obviously going against the will of God. Now, you must think about that for a minute, that to protect yourself against the disease, you're going against the will of God. And therefore, they said, no, there would be no vaccination. Well, my brother felt strongly enough that he wrote a piece in The Current, and the city council of Boston got up in arms. I can't begin to tell you the, uh, the, the commotion that it caused because they felt that not only was my brother advocating uh, activity contrary to the will of God, but he himself obviously was contrary to the will of God. And he was brought to, to, to jail. He was put on trial and he was put in jail. And that jail term I don't remember, perhaps a month, maybe six weeks, maybe two months, I don't remember. But the point is, during that time, the Franklins, and we still had a large family, felt that the newspaper should definitely be published, and moreover, there should be, there should be a Franklin as the publisher. Well, what luck! There was a Franklin apprentice to my brother, who was already in the shop and running, running very nicely, I should say, the, the activities of the shop. Let's put, that him is in, lucky. let's put him in charge. And so based on the family concept and the family's uh, combined thoughts, I became the publisher of the New England Current in lieu of my brother who was in jail. And this went on, and I, I should tell you, it's a very long process. You know, it would take us a full week to publish a single newspaper. 
Uh, every piece of type, every word is hand-set. Every page is hand-inked and hand-pressed. And if you're looking at four or eight pages, that's a great deal of typesetting and a great deal of, of printing. And you have only one press. And so you print all the first pages that you need, and then you clean the type and put it back in the, in the boxes, and you set your next pages. And then you print the next set of pages, and that's the way it's done. And so finally you have all of your pages complete, and you assemble the newspaper, which has been drying, and you have a complete newspaper. And that paper then goes out to the world. Well, I assure you, with all the help that we had in the, the shop, it still took a full week to, to produce a single newspaper. Uh, so there was a great deal of work, and it was uh, most important that you have an overseer, and I was the overseer. I did all the work that my brother would have done. Which Your brother up, is lucky that you were waiting in the wings to, to take that over. Well, perhaps uh, so. That's an interesting expression, waiting in the wings. As a man who uh, loves words, as you said, I knew the moment I said that you were going to ask me about that. And to be quite honest with you, I have no idea where that comes from, and I wish that I did. Maybe, maybe it'll come to me before the end of this conversation. Turkey. Perhaps it has to do with what? Turkey. <laughs> maybe. Who knows? Who knows? So... Uh, when you were talking about typesetting the uh, the newspaper, yes, I, I'm seeing this you working on this and working on this over a full week. You just had to have in your shop just boxes and containers of letters, and as you're individually setting these letters and, and words, would there? This is going to sound like a strange question, but I'm I'm also a person who's very curious how things work. Would would there be times where you would run out? of certain letters and have to slightly change the story because you didn't have enough letters for whatever word you were trying to make? Well, the fact that we had a newspaper meant that we had an ample supply of, of letters for a page, an estimated page. I don't ever recall running out of letters for the newspaper. Okay. However... We had to use all of the same letters again for the next page. And so it was important, you see, that we print everything that we were going to use, making sure that we also had enough paper, and, and then go on and clean, as I say, and, and, and put the, the type back in boxes so that we could set the next page. So in that sense, we were limited. But we were also limited by the nature of the press, as we only had one. So we could only do one page at a time, by hand. So time-consuming. Incredible. I wonder if, you know, that moment, I guess I wonder how important that moment was where your brother ended up incarcerated because the government at the time did not like what he was saying. I wonder how important that was later on when you were working on the Declaration of Independence, and you were working on those documents that would declare that we were free and, and what our rights were as American citizens. Did this event, because I mean, this would have been 1922, this would be 50 years before the Declaration of Independence. Did that event, did that affect you throughout your life? Or I, I understand your, your dad even had 
was a little had some thoughts on that. Did it affect you? Well, I should say yes, and it was embellished as I grew. As I mentioned, I could read, and I read tremendously, uh, voraciously, and I suspect it was any number of ideas that I probably encountered in books that, that, that set me on the course of believing that uh, honesty is, is, is the only policy. And while the events of my brother and, and the, uh, the current affected me, I did go on to so many other things shortly thereafter that I, I don't recall ever coming back and musing or dwelling on what happened and why it happened and how could we have avoided what happened or what had we learned by what happened, except those questions, just as I'm asking you now, or I, I'm elaborating now, some years later, when, and not many years later, when I was a printer in Philadelphia, and I could appreciate the nature of educating the apprentices and anyone who wanted to be educated, I could bring ideas together, and the ideas that we brought together and the group that we brought together, that I brought together, was the Junto. And the Junto was a group of young men like myself who wanted knowledge. We wanted to know what was going on in the world. And we questioned, we questioned what was happening, why was it happening, who was making money, who was losing money, and why were they losing money in business? Business should make money. And those questions, those questions which I very likely began early in my life, reached another critical point in my, my, my life with the Junto. Because from then on, it was established that we would, we would question, we would question openly the results, we would question the, the composition, we would question the motive of everything. Because you know, that's how anybody, we learn. And learning you know, for, is what we wanted to do. For anyone that listening to this that uh, wouldn't understand what the Junto is, the Junto was, my understanding, sir, was an organization that you started just getting intelligent people, artisans, tradesmen together basically just having conversations, trying to improve one another and maybe understand how they could do better in their lives and their businesses, as you've said. And I, I was definitely going to ask you about this, and I guess I'm curious, what would one of those meetings have looked like? I mean, did you, did you meet every week? Uh, were there 100 people that would show up, or were there five people that show up? Uh, you know, were there, were there people that were especially most involved in that that you recall? I'd love to hear anything that you would have to say about the Junto. Well, we were a small group, and we were a small group so that we could all participate actively and equally. So I believe we were, we were nine members. We were very small, uh, not more than a dozen, but quite small. And we would meet every, uh, every week at the end of the week, and we would talk about, as I've mentioned, in order, 
what's happening in our world, we would also come and everyone had a responsibility to present some, some element of, of, of the conversation so that we never came not, not being prepared. We never came without something to discuss, and we never came without a list of questions that we would pose to each other about what was happening. Why has such and such gone out of business? What, what has happened to the, the need for uh, a new war? perhaps, or a new pier at the, uh, the riverside. Uh, how, how is business going? What can we do to improve the standing of certain merchants? What can we do to improve the standing of the, the, the constabulary, for example? And those questions and that format was followed every single meeting. Now, the interesting thing about the Junto was we limited our membership to a few so that if you were part of the initial Junto, you could stay a part of the initial Junto, but we wouldn't bring on any more members. But if you felt there was a need for additional people to come together, you personally from our Junto could form another Junto which essentially would be a replication of what we had, but it too would be limited in size. But if you have nine men, and each one goes out and reaches nine other men, well, now that's 81 people or so, 90 people or so that you have reached beyond your initial group. And if we bring an an article uh, or a, an item to discussion in Argento, I rest assured that that same item would be discussed subsequently at the next meeting of the other juntos. And so the ideas were propelled outward throughout all of these clubs and all of these members who would then be able to uh, discuss and, and, and uh, ruminate and, and think and bring back the ideas back to us. What should we do about this? Well, it goes out and it goes out. And ultimately said, Somebody would say, well, perhaps we should do this, and that idea would come back again. So we were constantly sharing ideas with the, with the, the members of our community, not directly, but most indirectly. Some Through people, the, the leadership of these men. Well, they were curious. We were leaders, of course, but we didn't look upon it as leaders follow me. It was just an airing. It was a, a chance for us to, to get together a uh, platform, if you were. And uh, we each ran our, our own platform, and we exchanged ideas in this way. And some people may wonder, how was it that Franklin, well, a lot of people wonder about Franklin, but I wonder, but Franklin, how did he how did he manage to know so many people? How did he manage to get his ideas out into the public as efficiently as he did? And I assure you, this is the way that we, we published ideas through the Junto. Interesting. That makes sense. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the call so far. You're nearly to my favorite part that happens midway through the next episode. When he starts talking about the meeting that changed his loyalty to the British, I was holding my breath. 
This was a moment that changed the history of the world. So if you're ready to hear more from Dr. Franklin, he's waiting for you at the next episode. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend about the Calling History Podcast.